I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Christine Hancock. She's a medical director and family physician at CMAR Community Health Centers in Bellingham, Washington, and the clinical director for CMAR's opioid initiatives. She's an alumna of the UCB-UCSF Joint Medical Program and the UCSF Santa Rosa Family Medicine Residency Program. Her research and teaching focus on rural and community health with an emphasis on chronic pain and opioid use disorders. Christine, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, in December of 2021, which I guess now is two months ago, Anna Matthews, a health reporter for the Wall Street Journal, wrote a long essay about you and your practice and patients during the pandemic. She had been following and speaking with you since March of 2020, the very inception of all of this craziness. It's an essay, I think, that is really a must read, which is a phrase that's often overused, but I, I think in this case, it absolutely applies. Um, before we get into talking about your experience during the pandemic, can you tell us a bit about your path to medicine? How did you get into medicine? What drew you to primary care in particular? I think I'm glad that you had a chance to read it because we spent so long working on that article that um, it's nice to, to see it kind of be broadly distributed. And thanks for the question. I, it was something that kind of struck me that I haven't had a, a much time to reflect on of late for, for quite a while, actually. And I guess as I was going back to think about it, you know, working with med students now, I think there's kind of like three elements that really inform somebody's path toward medicine or toward any career for that matter. And I think part of it is just their baseline personality. You know, what, what did they come out <laughs> having in their, in their, in their case? And I see this with my kids too. I get surprised by how did they get this personality? Um, and then there's all these family influences. You know, what do your parents teach you growing up? What are the values that your family has? And then what are those outside things that your parents didn't necessarily bring to you, but kind of caught your eye as you're growing up? So for me, I guess my my personality tends to be pretty intuitive. I'm not necessarily that technical person, though I will stray that way if I need to, to kind of solve a problem. I'm also pretty introverted. So I've always tended toward, you know, the person who's writing their journal and reflecting and kind of taking a long solo walk as opposed to, you know, going to a big rave or something like that. And I'm also always, unfortunately for me, sometimes really um, focused on integrating, like, how did all these pieces fit together? How do I make, you know, put this big picture together? And then, you know, I grew up in a small town of 2000 people in the high desert of California next to this year Nevada mountain range. So I had obviously kind of a rural background. My parents came to that town because they worked for the Forest Service. They had training in like natural resources and geology. So it was kind of like a science-based background. And then they really, as far as like kind of family influences, they didn't um, have a strong religious background, but they were really service-oriented. And, you know, kind of things that I remember growing up were going to deliver firewood to people who ran out of firewood in the middle of the winter, you know, fixing people's cars, um, you know, having somebody over for dinner who, you know, had something happen where they, they didn't have any food or um, taking cookies to somebody down the street who was sick. And so that, you know, I guess for me, that felt like a natural part of growing up. But I realized later that that's not necessarily something everybody does, you know, with their free time. So I kind of took all these elements and, and then I thought, okay, well, perfect. I'm going to be like a, a, biological researcher. This is a perfect path for me because my parents gave me all this science training. I grew up in this kind of like, you know, beautiful natural environment. And I felt like it was a really good way to serve people because it, you know, there's a lot of things happening around me that 
were, you know, not positive, you know, draining this huge lake right nearby our house that then subsequently had these huge dust storms and, you know, caused people to get asthma and other respiratory diseases. So I guess, you know, I'm going into this long story, but the kind of crux moment of that story is that during college, I um, came back home from, from college to work for a bighorn sheep researcher who was studying this endangered population of bighorn sheep that live in high in the mountains and where I grew up. And my job was basically to scamper around these high mountain peaks, go collect these sheep pellets, and then take them back down to this lab and extract fecal DNA and try to figure out, you know, the kind of population dynamics with this bighorn sheep population. And I was like, this is the job for me. This is awesome. It has tons of like public kind of value because it helps inform the policy discussions about what to do with managing these populations and who can go in what area at what time. And um, I guess, you know, kind of much to my disappointment, I didn't have the kind of experience that I expected in the sense that, uh, you know, science is very political and it's not always very altruistic. And the the kind of service element was really missing for me in the in this experience, even though I think, you know, there were a lot of well-intentioned people, but it seemed like there were just all these power struggles and big battles for control over whose narrative was right. And I was laughing to myself last night, remembering. So my mentor in this project, at some point, he said, you know, I think you might be better suited to something else <laughs> besides this. And I was really like, kind of taken aback. But I actually thank him for that because his wife is an emergency room physician in the town of Bishop, California, where he lives. And he was like, you should just go with Carolyn and go spend some time in the ER. And I had kind of thought about this. I think I had already done like a EMT training course or something. But it was really, you know, along with other kind of experiences exposure to medicine, I, I felt like much more at home, much more in alignment with the kind of things that I valued, um, including, you know, service, science, community outreach, all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of took a left turn from that research pathway that I had been pursuing and started doing pre-med courses. So kind of halfway through my undergraduate career. And then I was also laughing, thinking about, I don't know if you remember that flow chart when you go into med school and you're trying to choose which specialty you want to go in. So it starts with a medical student at the top of the chart. And then the, the first division point is either crazy or sane. And so if you go down the crazy route, you go to a psychiatry. If you go down the sane route, then the next split point is hardworking or not hardworking. And so if you go hardworking route, then it's either, you know, family medicine, internal medicine or pediatrics. And then you decide, do you hate children, hate adults or don't hate either one? Um, and so anyway, I think basically I took this basic, you know, kind of personality interest in medicine. And then I went down that flow chart and ended up in family and community medicine with kind of a little bit of an academic bent to it. So I, I, I think, you know, I feel, I feel happy where I'm at. I feel like I'm in the right place, but it's a kind of an interesting route because I, you know, I wasn't really strongly exposed to medicine growing up. And so it took me a while to get there. Growing up in such a small city, did you kind of notice like, oh, there's like one doctor for however many people. I mean, it, it just so much, I, I grew up in New York City, so it was very, you know, there's like a doctor in every corner kind of thing. Right. Um, did that have any effect on you or did you notice anything unusual about that? You know, it's definitely, um, there is one clinic in the town where I grew up. It actually has not been able to recruit a doctor for over 20 years. And the clinic right now is kind of staffed by a combination of part-time, mid-level providers, nurse practitioners mainly, 
And then there's an emergency physician group that staffs the hospital. And when I last worked there, the, the ER doctor also kind of moonlighted in the clinic and would help provide some kind of care there periodically. And then there's kind of this patchwork of other um, doctors who kind of come in through telemedicine or they come for one day a week and do OB or dermatology or something like that. So it's definitely a, a health system that influenced me greatly. And I've done a lot of work in rural health policy as a result of that, because it really isn't the kind of model of medicine that you learn about in medical school. You know, there's, it, there's literally no doctor there. And so, you know, I worked in that clinic over a period of about six months on two different occasions and thought a lot about, wow, what does this mean to be a, a, a physician um, coming from this type of town? And I've always hoped and wanted to be able to go back to that area. But as you know, life kind of takes you different directions. So at the moment, I'm here in Western Washington. But I, you know, I, I wish there was a better way to get healthcare to rural populations, and it's something that you know is is one major element of the, the kind of underserved populations in our country for sure. So, yeah, that perfectly segues into the next question about the patient population that you typically treat. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us a bit about it, how many patients you see a day, where you see them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I work for a community health center that is federally qualified. So it has a special federal des- designation that kind of helps helps keep us afloat. And we're actually kind of a large system. So we're, we're the largest federally qualified community health, health center in the nation. We have 35, I think, primary care clinics right now. And then we have a number of other specialty Kind of elements and a nursing home and some other other pieces as well, behavioral health and um, substance use disorder treatment. So it's an exciting place to work for because there's a lot of big picture things system wise that are going on. My clinic in particular up here in the very northwest corner of Washington, we have right now six uh, doctors at mid levels total, and we primarily serve a Medicaid, Medicare, and uninsured population, and kind of focused on the Latino and farm worker population. Anna and I went through in the process of the article and kind of looked at all the statistics for my panel. So um, I think my the folks who were assigned to me are a third Latino, 10% Asian, and 20% multiracial. A quarter of them are first-generation uh, immigrants to the U.S. Most of them, I would say, have chronic conditions. And kind of my schedule on a daily basis, I usually start with like 22 to 24 people in my schedule, and then I'll typically see 17 or 18 of those who, who are able to come in. And during the course of the day, I'm also making phone calls and doing things for numerous other folks who aren't necessarily in the clinic, but just interacting with a lot of people. So it's definitely a busy, um, busy day. I always feel fully engaged. I'm not able to, you know, read any books at lunchtime or anything like that. I think sometimes people don't necessarily realize that all that it's not just the visits that take up the time, but you know, calling people with results, trying to get people to come in. And so your days end up expanding and expanding and expanding. Is is that right? Absolutely. Yep. I think I spend, you know, almost as much time on a given day doing things that aren't direct patient care as I do doing that direct patient care. And some days it's actually more because it takes a lot to do that background work for sure. Wow. So what time do you get home uh, at night? Um, I usually get home at a reasonable hour because I have these young kids. So I'm, you know, I try to be out of the clinic a little after five, but I usually end up working for 
at least an hour, if not two or three in the evenings after they go to bed. So um, it depends. I've, you know, I've worked very hard to try to get my work and work-life balance adjusted properly. Um, and I think some of the things that I end up doing at night are not necessarily because of direct patient care. They're because of all the other things that I happen to have committed to on the side, but you know, there's still work. So. Sure. And, and I remember I, I trained in New York and spent probably half of my training at Bellevue hospital, the mm-hmm. public hospital in New York. And I, a lot of the patients are some of the patients that you're seeing med- Medicaid, uninsured, uh, undocumented patients. And it always seemed to me that what you needed to be as a physician for these patients was not just a physician, but also like a counselor, a social worker. I, I mean, there because there are so many gaps that need to be filled. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about mm-hmm. kind of the multiple aspects of your job and taking care of this patient population? Yes, I think another word I would say is an advocate. <laughs> because yes. a lot of these patients are just so isolated and um, lonely and, you know, struggle with health resource issues um, and health literacy. I just saw a patient yesterday that was coming to mind as you were talking and He's could have been in this article too. I think he's he's a 68-year-old guy with severe obstructive sleep apnea who gets low oxygen levels on at night, you know, constantly through the night. COPD, he has terrible kind of issues with some GI stuff with his colon, and he lives in his car. And he has been living in his car for almost three years. And I see him almost every quarter. He comes into his appointments, he's clean and well-dressed and very well-spoken, you know, respectful guy. And, you know, knowing what I know about severe obstructive sleep apnea, I know this is going to progress to, you know, heart issues and, you know, change, you know, risk, increased risk for stroke, for example, all these other, other complications. And so I, on multiple occasions, have written letters for him to try to increase his status on the local housing lists because he has a severe medical complication whose treatment is a CPAP or a machine to treat sleep apnea. And he literally cannot use this machine when he's living in his car. You know, there's no way that he can, he can get adequate treatment for this condition. And I've connected him to our local housing kind of um, advocacy group. And I've talked to him about who he's talked to at that organization and who is he working with and, you know, really gone down the rabbit hole with him to try to figure out how do I help this man? Because the treatment for his medical condition is well known, but the path to get there is not well known. And so definitely, you know, it's sort of for me about creative problem solving and trying to figure out like what resource do I know that can potentially help this person? Because I definitely don't know the way to get there, but there has to be a way. (laughs) So, Yeah, unfortunately, that's a lot of medicine these days. Let's get into the the topic of COVID because when news first broke of COVID-19 cases in the United States, how did you think your practice would be affected? How are you planning to adjust, particularly given, you know, uh, the patient population you see? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of funny to reflect back on it, especially in light of the Omicron surge that we're experiencing right now, because I think I really imagined that it would be more like what we're seeing currently but without vaccine protection. So I really thought that, you know, hundreds of my patients were going to get very ill and die within a matter of months. I I kind of imagined like I have this really sick population. 
the estimates that the epidemiologists are giving us for, you know, kind of deaths are X. And so if I multiply, you know, that number times my patient population, that means like 100 of my patients are going to die. Um, and so I didn't really have a plan, to be honest. I just felt really overwhelmed at the thought of counseling, you know, families of loved ones who passed away and, you know, kind of dealing with all the complications of people being hospitalized and, and, and the things that happen afterwards. You know, I think, as you know, it didn't really unfold that way. It was more like we locked everything down. People were really super isolated and other things happened. And then now it's when we're seeing more, you know, right now, um, you know, this month is literally uh, last month, I guess, is the first patient I've had who's died from COVID in the entire pandemic. And it's just kind of surprising to see the trajectory and see how different it is than what I had expected at the beginning. Wow. Yeah, that is a tremendous difference between expectations and, and reality. In the essay, one of the patients who comes up is, is Jamie Milton. Can you tell us about him before the pandemic? Yeah, Jamie is a patient I've um, treated since I think 2014. And when I met him, he was in his early 40s and suffered from multiple kind of cardiometabolic diseases, as they say, you know, uh, diabetes and hypertension, chronic kidney disease, congestive heart failure. He was really obese, over 300 pounds. And he also kind of suffered from some of those diseases of despair that we talk about a lot. So depression, anxiety, PTSD, and then he had unfortunately developed substance use disorders with IV, method, heroin. And so I actually got to know him through his partner initially because she came in and wanted some treatment for her opioid use disorder. And I had just started prescribing buprenorphine or Suboxone. And he kind of realized that that would potentially be an option for treatment for him as well. So he came back in and said, hey, you know, my wife's doing really well on this stuff. What about me? And I was, you know, excited and open to that possibility because it, it seemed like, you know, there was nothing else positive happening for him. He was just kind of continuing to spiral down. He had already developed in-stage renal disease and was on dialysis in his mid-40s. And he actually did really well in treatment. He went into recovery from his um, substance use disorders. He lost 120 pounds, as Anna mentioned in this article. He's got off of all of his diabetes medications. He's started going to dialysis regularly instead of skipping out at least once a week. And then, as she mentioned in this article, he actually got on the kidney transplant list at the University of Washington, which to me was a pretty shocking development because it's really, as you know, not easy to get on a kidney transplant list. You have to do a lot of things in order to prove that you're a good candidate for treatment. And so... Right, because they, they, won't, they won't do the transplant unless you have a support system, you've committed to a healthy lifestyle, you have to take your medications every day. I mean, it's a... Yeah, it's a huge, huge commitment. So they want to make sure that everyone they transplant is ready to make that commitment. Is that right. right. And has a significant life expectancy, you know, because I think prior to, you know, getting on to buprenorphine and, and stabilizing, he really probably had a less than five-year life expectancy. And that was clearly extended by his changes in his health status that he was able to accomplish. Yeah. I I think it's really hard for people to make these kinds of drastic changes in their lives. Mm -hmm. The changes that you're talking about for him are really were incredible. How did you help move this along or what was your strategy here? It, it just really is kind of, it blows me away a little mm -hmm. bit. 
You know, I I actually attribute most of the kind of outstanding change to him. I think it really was related to his personality and his support systems, his, you know, drive to recover. I think, you know, what he told me is that for 15 or 20 years after he initially developed a back injury and was put on opioids, he was just completely hopeless. He had felt like he had no chance. And when he stopped having such severe cravings for opioids when he got on buprenorphine, I think it felt like his mind cleared and he was able to see that he had a chance at recovery and he wanted to recover for the sake of his of his partner and his daughter, who was, I think, then in her late teen years. And he had support from his family, who some of whom were also, you know, kind of in recovery or, you know, doing okay. And so to be honest, you know, I think I would see him typically every three or four months and prescribe his medication and check in with him. But he really did the vast majority of that on his own. I would also say, though, that one kind of underrecognized element of his care team that the article didn't really highlight is his nephrologist and the, and the, and the staff at his dialysis center who also really cared for him and saw him, you know, three times a week and checked in with him and, um, I think helped, you know, provide that continuity for, you know, realizing that he actually could potentially get on the transplant list if he got healthy and, and, you know, the reasons why he needed to control his diabetes. So I think. Partly his personality, a little bit from me and the medications I was prescribing, and partly from his uh, his other healthcare team. Hmm. Really uh, remarkable. What happened to him during the pandemic? You know, I think like a lot of patients, he basically got really scared that he was going to get COVID, and he recognized that he was somebody who was high risk because of dialysis, diabetes, all these other conditions. And so he really stopped doing the things that he normally did to sustain himself and his mental health. So he stopped seeing family. He stopped going fishing. He stopped going out in the community and seeing friends. And so I think those kind of like simple but effective support um, systems that he had in his recovery fell apart. And in their place, you know, he developed depression and anxiety. He was, you know, constantly kind of freaking out at dialysis because he couldn't stand all the alarms going off in the um, on the dialysis chair. So we'd have to go in the very first thing in the morning at like seven o'clock in the morning to be the first person dialyzed. And he needed to take lorazepam in order to get through that experience. And that just kind of spiraled downhill to the point where he ended up relapsing in August of 2020, unfortunately. Mm. And, you know, you think about like what it takes to turn your life around and you you talk about commute the community support system to have that taken away it it seems like a lot of patients who i've seen who can't necessarily kind of turn things around it's because they don't have that support system and so you take that support system away and i feel like it you sort of take away hope mm-hmm. for a lot of people by doing that i agree definitely yeah, one of the things he told Anna I, during the pandemic was that it just got to be too much. He, he said, just the stress of all of it, never knowing, afraid to go out, because I hear that people that are vulnerable, if they get it, they're going to die. And me being vulnerable, being on dialysis, a heart situation, everything, I was worried. And that's what started it all. What ultimately happened to him? 
Unfortunately, he basically just entered this spiral of organ failure. Um, and, you know, I think you have seen this in, in your training as well, where you get an infection and then it causes a heart issue, which then affects the kidneys, which then affects the heart again. And it's, and so he just constantly started going in and out of the emergency room in the ICU with low blood pressure and skin infection. And, you know, every one thing led to another. And so at each point, I felt like, okay, I'm going to help this guy. We're going to stabilize him, you know, get get him back on medication, treat his infection. I spent a lot of time calling different specialists. But I guess at some point around March or April of 2021, I started to realize that there was definitely no exit plan for this spiral. There was no way he was going to kind of fully recover or have any type of stability, you know, kind of long-term. And that's a really hard place to be both as the as the physician as well as the patient because it really changes the conversation that you have whereas before you know we were talking about you know his long-term prognosis and how are we going to treat the first second and third problem on his list and now we were not talking about that at all we were talking more about his quality of life and what he could expect um you know from the time that he had left and that's not not where i was expecting or hoping to be you know the year before Right. And the article refers to other patients like Jamie, indicating that perhaps this wasn't a singular tragic occurrence in your clinic. In her reporting, Anna mentions Miss Whittemore, Miss Wasaki, mm-hmm. and others. Can you tell us about these other patients as well and what happened? Definitely. Miss um, Whitmore, I actually just saw in the clinic the other day. So she comes to mind. She's an 85 year old. Uh, Latina lady who I've seen since I also started working here and also has, you know, diabetes, hypertension, heart failure. She is somebody who um, was really uh, stable over a number of years, mostly because she has this amazing caregiver who's not a family member, but she has kind of treated her like family. And so she is there at her house daily, you know, massaging her legs and helping her get up to the bathroom and cooking her meals and going out grocery shopping for her and During the pandemic, her caregiver actually got sick and wasn't able to care for her anymore. And because of all this kind of fractured systems of care that we have, there was no replacement caregiver. There was nobody to help her. And so I very vividly recall an occasion where I called her on the phone because she was, she missed her appointment to check in on her just because this wasn't usual. Normally she was very reliable about showing up. And she explained to me the situation that the caregiver had gotten sick. She didn't have anybody to help her. And I was literally going through this list of like, who is bringing you groceries? How are you getting toilet paper? How are you, how do you get your mail? Because I just, you know, there was no way that she was meeting her basic needs without this caregiver. And she, the, the only way that she's getting any food is that the caregiver's daughter was actually going out shopping for her and bringing her food, even though she wasn't being paid to do so. So yeah, there are a number of other events that happened after that, but I guess the the basic kind of story with her is just that she had this amazing kind of fallout of resources in the setting of the pandemic, and I, I'm surprised that she didn't do worse. To be honest, and she wouldn't, she would have, I think, potentially even died if it weren't for the um, caregiver's family that was helping her out. How many other patients do you think, like in your clinic? Are there who suffered in this way or are suffering in this way currently? Hundreds. Mm. I, every single day I see somebody where I suddenly realize that, you know, they're living in their car or 
they lost their insurance or their family member died of COVID or something just kind of heartbreaking and horrible has happened to them. And I think that's something that, to me, part of the long-term effect of the pandemic is just that now it's normal for us to wait to go get things taken care of. Whereas before we were encouraged to kind of be more proactive and, oh, if something's wrong, go to the emergency room. Now people are waiting to go to the ER. But part of the other problem is that all these things have accumulated and we still don't even know they're there because we haven't seen those patients for a year or two years. And so we don't even have the chance to evaluate or treat them because we still are not aware that they even exist. Yes. And as you sort of tell these stories and as reading the article, I I couldn't help but think that these are part of a large and disturbing picture worldwide, if not nationwide. And and we can see it in so many places. So I'll, I'll just get on my soapbox mm-hmm. for a brief moment, if you don't mind. Oh, go for it. Um, <laughs> so according to a CDC report in May 2020, during the pandemic, ED visits for suspected suicide attempts uh, increased among adolescents aged 12 to 17, particularly young girls. During February to March of 2021, suspected suicide attempts to the ED were 50% higher among girls aged 12 to 17 than during the same period in 2019. That also increased among boys, though not to the same extent. It was about 3.7% increase. And then in a study in uh, Journal of Preventive Cardiology, Authors found that cardiovascular disease service activity decreased by 60 to 100% compared with pre-pandemic levels in eight hospitals across China, Italy, and England. Results showed a sharp decline, about 38% in the number of general practice consults for cerebrovascular and cardiovascular care. And then there were precipitous declines for new diagnoses of cerebrovascular issues, so 29% decrease for stroke. Hard to imagine that there's any reason for that beyond just like not coming in for issues. And and in a systematic review published in Frontiers in Oncology, authors found that cancer screening programs have been clearly interrupted. Anticipated outcomes include delayed diagnosis, marked increases in the number of avoidable cancer deaths. We also know that virtual schooling has left students a half a year behind pace uh, with learning loss disproportionately falling on Latino and Black students. The American Academy of Pediatrics declared a mental health state of emergency during the pandemic. And finally, um, a systematic review of drug overdose-related deaths in North America found that these deaths after the onset of COVID were higher compared with the months leading up to the pandemic in 2020 and the comparative months in 2019. So they increased by, depending on the jurisdictions you look at, 2 to 60% and by 58% in Canada compared you know, comparing later 2020 with early 2020. So the really, I, I think this is like, these are harrowing statistics and very disturbing. And in, in an interview with Anna, you said, there's no help on the horizon. There's nobody who's coming to clean up the mess or help these folks get back on their feet now that they've been isolated and struggling for months and years. There never was and there isn't now. So I think the difference is that people were limping along and keeping up and right now they're really not. So perhaps not all of this was preventable, but it certainly seems like our jackhammer approach of locking people down with any, without any kind of public health mitigation tactic or public health exception uh, has been mistaken and is sort of consistent with how, in some ways, how we were treating people before the pandemic even started. I know it's easy to be an arbiter general here, but my own opinion is that our public health authorities didn't think clearly enough 
through what was going on. Uh, given how much on the ground work you do and how much you've seen, do you think that's right? Where have we gone wrong? And how do we get ourselves and our patients out of this mess? It's interesting because I think I know a lot of folks in public health. And I think that they understood at the beginning of the pandemic that this was going to be a problem. But I don't think they necessarily had any of the resources they would have needed to address it. They were, I think, thinking about preventing the excess death and mortality from COVID as kind of a first priority. And I really feel like I can't really fault them for that because I was thinking along the same lines. I think most of us were, you know, let's, let's make sure folks don't die. Um, because I think, you know, when we think about Maslow's hierarchy, like we want to keep people alive first and then we want to make sure they have food, water and shelter and then kind of move up from there. But I agree with you that I think there's been a lot of unintended consequences from those decisions. And also the kind of rollback of all those restrictions has been slow. Even I, I actually spent some time in, in mid 2020 writing letters to our school district superintendent expressing my concern about this, the restrictions that they still had in place for the exact reason that you're describing, because I was seeing tons of kids who were watching six to eight hours of screen time per day. They had gained 20 pounds since their last appointment. You know, their BMI was now in the 99th percentile instead of the 95th percentile. They weren't getting any exercise at home because the parents wouldn't even let them go outside. And our, te- our case rates were extremely low. This, we, they were way below the CDC kind of threshold for closing schools. And, you know, my question to the superintendent was, why, why are you closing the school still? You know, what, what, what do you need to see in order to reopen the school to help these kids who are really struggling? And, you know, there's lots of reasons and, and kind of, you know, plans and kind of procedures that they had wanted to follow. And I think there's also kind of, you know, elements with the teachers union and other, other aspects that, came into play. But ultimately, the folks who shouldered this burden, as you said, are the the folks who are most marginalized, who have the fewest resources and don't have that ability to kind of pick themselves up by their bootstraps, no matter how much we'd like to say that they can. Yeah. And and if you could, you know, wave a wand and have whatever you wanted or, you know, all that, what would you ask for to kind of help, at least for your patients, reverse this process or uh, at least begin the process of reversing this? You know, it's funny, I mentioned that I've worked with the National Rural Health Association working kind of health policy related things. And I have never felt particularly successful in that work. Unfortunately, I've never felt like I had a solution to these kind of complex health policy issues that we're facing. And so I feel kind of equally <laughs> incapable in, in, in the face of the question that you have as well. But I think the common or the base elements that I would say that we need in order to kind of start to think about recovery, one is that we actually need a system. There is right now, to me, it doesn't feel like we have any system whatsoever. It's just like this patchwork that has all these huge holes in it. And that system really needs to cover everyone in some basic way. Uh, we see lots of undocumented patients, and thankfully we have a few like cancer prevention programs and some help from the local hospital to see those patients and some folks who are donating their services at the ophthalmology office. But there's no basic coverage, um, you know, in our country for for everyone. And then that system obviously has to be financially sustainable and has to have some efficiencies kind of baked into the pie because. If we say, okay, great, we're going to cover everyone and it's going to, you know, cover all their basic needs, but then that system fails in five years, then that's not really in my mind a a successful 
experiment. And then I guess finally, it has to have some element of quality focus built in because if we're, again, trying to cover everyone and provide basic services, but we're not thinking about, is this a good service or is it an actual, you know, kind of needed service, then that's not going to work either. So I guess, you know, all of that falls under the realm of system redesign and the the kind of possibility of doing that in the in the near future, I think is really low, though. I do feel like there have been some helpful efforts in kind of basic COVID management that have been been helpful, you know, covering vaccines for everybody, covering tests for everybody, you know, the the kind of those elements of the of the big picture that have been specifically done in the setting of COVID have been good. And the WHO kind of says the same thing. I was looking at their kind of policy statements last night. You know, they they're the three things that they are kind of looking at to help countries recover from the pandemic are investing in primary care sustainable financing and looking at health equity. So I, I don't think, you know, it's, it's not a magic recipe, but it really requires, I think, a change in in focus and uh, priorities for us as a country, which is going to be hard to promote. Mm. And, and not to put you on the spot, but last question, which is that you don't have a magic wand right now and you don't have, you know, all the resources that would be required. How are you, how are you dealing with this with your patients? Um, how are you treading water? You know, I think just like everybody else, I'm just going day by day. I try to do what I need to do for the people in front of me. And then also think about how am I going to get the people back in who I haven't seen for two years? How, how do we identify those people? And one, one person particularly comes to mind that Anna and I actually talked a lot about um, really early in the pandemic. I saw a gentleman who was, and had recently at an appointment with me, I think in February, 2020, been diagnosed with diabetes. He was also living in his car and he came in asking me, you know, what can I eat living in my car that would be good to manage my diabetes? And I was like, well, maybe, you know, out of Costco chicken, lots of protein, low, low glycemic index, doesn't require preparation, you know, that kind of thing. It was, it was like one of those problems that you'd never want to be faced with solving. And I haven't seen this guy since. We, I've been, I've called him numerous times. I've had staff reach out to him, and I literally don't know if he survived the pandemic, where he's living, you know, what his health status is. Was he hospitalized? Was he ever vaccinated? So I guess you know, in a medical director role now, I've been thinking about how can I leverage our reporting capabilities and our, you know, our staff and and our outreach to find those people who've been off the radar for all that time and really desperately need to get back in. So I don't know that I'm doing particularly well at that, but I do feel like there are small signs of hope where I will see a patient for the second or third time in a routine fashion and start to think, wow, I'm actually catching up a little bit for this one particular person. Like they actually did their mammogram and they actually have their colon cancer screening and their you know blood pressure is controlled and they, all their medications are at the pharmacy and I can just feel glad about that one particular person. Yeah, uh, on that note, Christine, thanks so much for taking the time and thanks for all the work that you do. Well, thanks for inviting me and thanks for um, talking about community health and the folks who we serve. They need, they need our attention, I think. So thanks for all of that. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts. 